Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kevod Malkuto Le'olam Va'ed Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be the name of the glory of His kingdom forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, Mishpacha. Welcome to the Daily Audio Torah. I'm Laura Densmore, your host, and I'm so glad you're joining in with me today. Today is Thursday, June 8th. It is prophesied in the book of Amos that in the last days there would be a famine in the land, not a famine for food, but a famine for the word of God, as it is written in Amos 8, 11, and 12. Behold, the days come, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. Even in the days of Joseph there were seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. He had stored up grain for the seven years of famine. The Daily Audio Torah is your storehouse where you can get grain. It is twenty minutes every day of pure scripture flowing out, living manna to feed your spirit. Are you being blessed by this ministry? Please consider supporting Daily Audio Torah. You can make a one-time or a recurring donation by going to dailyaudiotorah.com and then click on the Give pick on the navigation menu. You can then make a secure online donation there. Thank you for your prayers, and thank you for your support. Now let's continue our journey through the entire Bible in one year. This week we are reading from the Israel Bible for the Hebrew Scriptures and from the King James for the Brit Hadashah. Today we continue the Torah portion Naso, and it means elevate. Numbers 6, 16-27 The Kohen shall present them before Hashem and offer the sin offering and the burnt offering. He shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of well-being to Hashem, together with the basket of unleavened cakes. The Kohen shall also offer the meal offerings and the libations. The Nazarite shall then shave his consecrated hair at the entrance of the tent of meeting and take the locks of his consecrated hair and put them on the fire that is under the sacrifice of well-being. The Kohen shall take the shoulder of the ram when it has been boiled, one unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer, and place them on the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. The Kohen shall elevate them as an elevation offering before Hashem, and this shall be a sacred donation for the Kohen in addition to the breast of the elevation offering and the thigh of gift offering. After that the Nazarite may drink wine. Such is the obligation of a Nazarite, except that he who vows an offering to God of what he can afford beyond his Nazarite requirements must do exactly according to the vow that he has made beyond his obligation as a Nazarite. Hashem spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. Say to them, 
Hashem bless you and protect you. Hashem deal kindly and graciously with you. Hashem bestow his favor upon you and grant you peace. Thus, they shall link my name with the people of Israel, and I will bless them. 1 Kings 5, 1-638 Solomon's rule extended over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and the boundary of Egypt. They brought Solomon tribute and were subject to him all his life. Solomon's daily provisions consisted of thirty cores of semolina and sixty cores of ordinary flour, ten fattened oxen, twenty pasture-fed oxen, and one hundred sheep and goats besides deer and gazelles, roebucks and fatted geese. For he controlled the whole region west of the Euphrates, all the kings west of the Euphrates from Tipsha to Aza, and he had peace on all his borders round about. All the days of Solomon, Yehuda, and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, dwelt in safety, everyone under his own vine and under his own fig tree. Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariotry and 12,000 horsemen. All those prefects, each during his month, would furnish provisions for King Solomon and for all who were admitted to King Solomon's table. They did not fall short in anything. They would also, each in his turn, deliver barley and straw for the horses and the swift steeds to the places where they were stationed. Hashem endowed Solomon with wisdom and discernment in great measure, with understanding as vast as the sands on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the Ketamites and than all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was the wisest of all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, and Haman, Chalcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. His fame spread among all the surrounding nations. He composed 3,000 proverbs, and his songs numbered 1,005. He discoursed about trees, from the cedar in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. And he discoursed about beasts, birds, creeping things, and fishes. Men of all peoples came to hear Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom. King Hiram of Tyre sent his officials to Solomon when he heard that he had been anointed king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Solomon sent this message to Hiram, You know that my father David could not build a house for the name of Hashem his God because of the enemies that encompassed him until Hashem had placed them under the soles of his feet. But now Hashem my God has given me respite all around. There is no adversary and no mischance. And so I propose to build a house for the name of Hashem my God, as Hashem promised my father David, saying, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Please then give orders for cedars to be cut for me in the Lebanon. My servants will work with yours, and I will pay you any wages you may ask for your servants. For as you know, there is none among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. When Hiram heard Solomon's message, he was overjoyed. Praise be Hashem this day, he said, for granting David a wise son to govern this great people. So Hiram sent word to Solomon, I have your message. I will supply all the cedar and cypress logs you require. My servants will bring them down to the sea from Lebanon, and at the sea I will make them into floats, and I will deliver them to any place that you designate to me. 
There I shall break them up for you to carry away. You in turn shall supply the food I require for my household. So Hiram kept Solomon provided with all the cedar and cypress wood he required. And Solomon delivered to Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as provisions for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Such was Solomon's annual payment to Hiram. Hashem had given Solomon wisdom, as he had promised him. There was friendship between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon imposed forced labor on all Israel, and the levy came to 30,000 men. He sent them to the Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month. They would spend one month in the Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the forced labor. Solomon also had 70,000 porters and 80,000 couriers in the hills, apart from Solomon's 3,300 officials who were in charge of the work and supervised the gangs doing the work. The king ordered huge blocks of choice stone to be quarried so that the foundations of the house might be laid with hewn stones. Solomon's masons, Hiram's masons, and the men of Gibal shaped them. Thus, the timber and the stones for building the house were made ready. In the 480th year after the Israelites left the land of Egypt, in the month of Ziv, that is, the second month, in the fourth year of his reign over Israel, Solomon began to build the house of Hashem. The house which King Solomon built for Hashem was sixty amot long, twenty amot wide, and thirty amot high. The portico in front of the great hall of the house was twenty amot long, along with the width of the house and ten amot deep to the front of the house. He made windows for the house recessed and latticed. Against the outside wall of the house, the outside walls of the house enclosing the great hall and the shrine, he built a storied structure and he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five amount wide, the middle one six amount wide, and the third seven amount wide, for he had provided recesses around the outside of the house so as not to penetrate the walls of the house. When the house was built, only finished stones cut at the quarry were used, so that no hammer or axe or any iron tool was heard in the house while it was being built. At the entrance, the entrance to the middle story of the side chambers was on the right side of the house, and winding stairs led up to the middle chambers and from the middle chambers to the third story. When he finished building the house, he paneled the house with beams and planks of cedar. He built the storage structure against the entire house, each story five amount high so that it encased the house with timbers of cedar. Then the word of Hashem came to Solomon, With regard to this house you are building, if you follow my laws and observe my rules and faithfully keep my commandments, I will fulfill for you the promise I gave to your father David. I will abide among the children of Israel, and I will never forsake my people Israel. Then Solomon had completed the construction of the house, and then he paneled the walls of the house on the inside with planks of cedar. He also overlaid the walls on the inside with wood, from the floor of the house to the ceiling, and he overlaid the floor of the house with planks of cypress. Twenty amount from the rear of the house he built a partition of cedar planks from the floor to the walls. He furnished its interior to serve as a shrine, as the Holy of Holies. The front part of the house, that is, the great hall, measured forty a moat. 
The cedar of the interior of the house had carvings of gourds and calyxes. It was all cedar, no stone was exposed. In the innermost part of the house he fixed a shrine in which to place the ark. The interior of the shrine was twenty amount long, twenty amount wide, and twenty amount high. He overlaid it with solid gold. He similarly overlaid its cedar altar. Solomon overlaid the interior of the house with solid gold, and he inserted golden chains into the door of the shrine. He overlaid the shrine with gold so that the entire house was overlaid with gold. He even overlaid with gold the entire altar of the shrine, and so the entire house was completed. In the shrine he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten amot high. One had a wing measuring five amot, and another wing measuring five amot, so that the spread from wingtip to wingtip was ten amot. And the wing spread of the other cherub was also ten amot. The two cherubim had the same measurements and proportions. The height of the one cherub was ten amot, and so was that of the other cherub. He placed the cherubim inside the inner chamber. Since the wings of the cherubim were extended, a wing of the one touched one wall, and a wing of the other touched the other wall, while their wings in the center of the chamber touched each other. He overlaid the cherubim with gold. All over the walls of the house, of both the inner area and the outer area, he carved reliefs of cherubim, palms, and calyxes, and he overlaid the floor of the house with gold, both the inner and the outer areas. For the entrance of the shrine he made doors of olive wood, pilasters and doorposts having five sides. The double doors were of olive wood, and on them he carved reliefs of cherubim, palms, and calyxes. He overlaid them with gold, hammering the gold onto the cherubim and the palms. For the entrance of the great hall, too, he made doorposts of oleaster wood having four sides, and the double doors of cypress wood, each door consisting of two rounded planks. On them he carved cherubim, palms, and calyxes, overlaying them with gold applied evenly over the carvings. He built the inner enclosure of three courses of hewn stones and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, in the month of Ziv, the foundations of the house were laid. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, that is the eighth month, the house was completed. According to all its details and all its specifications, it took him seven years to build it. Acts 7, 1-29 Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Sharan, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your kindred, and come into the land which I shall show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Sharan. And from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. And he gave him no inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession and to his seed after him, when as yet he had no child. And God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should bring them into bondage, and entreat them evil four hundred years. 
and the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said God, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac, and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him, and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And at the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's kindred was made known to Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him, and all his kindred, threescore and fifteen souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried over into Sikkim, Shechem, and laid in the sepulchre that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emmer, the father of Sychem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose which knew not Joseph. The same dealt subtly with our kindred, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. In which time Moses was born, and was exceedingly fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up, and nourished him as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself to them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, you are brethren, why do you wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Will you kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? And then Moses fled at this saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Psalm 127, 1-5 Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman wakes but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sheep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. Proverbs 16, 28-30 A froward man sows strife, and a whisperer separates chief friends. 
A violent man entices his neighbor and leads him into the way that is not good. He shuts his eyes to devise froward things. Moving his lips, he brings evil to pass. I want to speak to you today from 1 Kings chapter 5 and 6, and in these two chapters we hear a detailed description of the construction of the first temple that was built by Solomon. It took seven years to build, and then in 586 BC, on the 9th of Av, the temple was destroyed. The Babylonians came in and breached the walls and set the entire city and the temple on fire and destroyed it. The temple was then rebuilt during the time of Herod, and he rebuilt the temple, and again, it was destroyed. On the same dark day in Jewish history, the ninth of Av, the walls were breached, the temple was burnt down and destroyed, and it has never been rebuilt since. However, in the book of Ezekiel, in the final closing chapters of Ezekiel, chapter 42, 43, 44, it talks about a final third temple. And this is during the rule and the reign of Yeshua. So there will be another temple. Does the temple matter? Yes, it does. It matters very much. This is the place that Hashem chose to place his holy name. The letter Sheen can be seen from above, and Sheen um, is often a shortened version to represent El Shaddai. And so when you look down upon Jerusalem from above, like an airplane view, you will see the letter Sheen literally engraved into the ground, stamped into the ground, um, the letter Sheen. I want to read two chapters from a book. It's written by Benjamin Hilton. It's called Jesus Loves the Temple. And you can get this book by going to hayovel.com and go to their marketplace and you can order the book. It's really, really good. Chapter 1. Illegal to Pray. The disruption came out of nowhere on a beautiful sunny day after ascending the Temple Mount with singing. I am just beginning to share with the group about the wonders of the house of God, the beauty, the love, the joy of being in our eternal Father's presence. Then, hey, hey, hey! The words, in a harsh Arabic accent, quickly catch my attention. I look up to see a well-built man with a short black beard pushing his way through the crowd directly toward me. He wears a white short-sleeved shirt, black cargo pants, and carries a radio. A glance at the insignia emblazoned on the shoulder of his uniform confirms my first suspicion. He's a senior member of the Jordanian religious police, the WAF. His voice is harsh and confrontational. Hey, buddy, don't talk. I'm taken aback. Another member of the WAF pushes his way over. Who is the guide here, he demands. The first officer continues, practically yelling in my face. You have to respect the place. You talk here. This is the Al-Ask Mosque. Don't say Temple Mount. This is the Dome of the Rock. I tell him to talk with the Israeli police, not wanting to escalate the situation by engaging in an argument. According to pre-agreed-upon rules between the Jordanian and Israeli police, visitors aren't supposed to talk to the WAF, and they in turn aren't supposed to speak with visitors all to prevent conflicts and riots. Even though they had broken their end of the agreement by confronting us so aggressively, I don't want to break our end by engaging. 
The Israeli police need to get involved. The WAF officer doesn't let up. Talk to the police. I don't give a blankety-blank, he yells. We rule the place here. I can take you outside. I tell him to hold on a second and turn to tell my group to stay where they are for a moment so I can find an Israeli police officer before things get out of hand. I only get one word out before he continues his rant. You and the whole crew, go outside, go outside, he yells. Talk to the police, I try to explain. Talk to yourself, you hear. You respect the place, you visitor. You should thank us for being here next time. No, right now. You and the whole crew need to go outside. The yelling continues, accented by more colorful language than I would like to recount. Other Jordanian officers start coming toward us, curious as to what the commotion is, and a crowd quickly forms. Realizing the WAF aren't going to back down any time soon, I finally am able to slip out to find an Israeli police officer. Things are getting out of hand. This incident was disturbing me. Confrontation and harassment by the WAF had become familiar to us in our visits to the Temple Mount. But where would we draw the line? How much is too much? For quite some time now, I've stood by the idea that with the Temple Mount symbolizing unity and unconditional love on the earth, it's not the place for confrontation, even to those who oppose the material things of God. But was it right to continually allow ourselves to be pushed off after only spending a few minutes in the holiest site on earth? Was it right to allow the short amount of time this group would spend on the side of God's house to end because a Jordanian guard was upset with us? And for what reason, the simple mentioning of the idea of a house for God, a place where he chose to put his name? Israel had conquered Jerusalem in a miraculous war of self-defense fought in June of 1967. At the commencement, Israel's primary enemy was Egypt, with a front on the Syrian border and an imminent threat from Jordan as well. In an attempt to suppress adding yet another front to the war, Prime Minister of Israel, Levi Eshkol, asked the Jordanian king to stay out of the fighting and promised no aggression by Israel, if he would agree. Jordan refused the offer and decided to join the Arab alliance in the final goal of conquering the hated Jewish nation, wiping them into the sea once and for all. Jordanian troops began shelling Israeli positions along Israel's eastern border and from territory they had occupied in eastern Jerusalem. Reluctantly, the Israeli military was forced to attack East Jerusalem, otherwise known as the Old City, in an act to protect its citizens in West Jerusalem and the surrounding gates. After a bloody battle, Israeli ground and air forces were victorious in capturing the strategic Jordanian defenses around Jerusalem, which paved the way for a paratrooper brigade to storm the old city of Jerusalem through the Lion's Gate in a short but successful attack. Army radios crackled to life as Brigade Commander Mordecai Gur broadcasted a phrase that would be inscribed on the heart of every Israeli for generations to come. The Temple Mount is in our hands. The Israeli public was shocked. They, the people who had endured centuries of endless persecution, who had been driven from their holy city time and time again, who had experienced expulsion, exile, crusades, and the tragic Holocaust, had once again captured their holy city. It was in their hands. Coming back to his encounter 
on the Temple Mount Plaza. I push my way through the gathering crowd and finally find a few members of the Israeli police. I tell them what is happening and they reluctantly respond. They dispatch a few officers to protect us and mildly rebuke the WAF officers for causing a disturbance and nearly a riot. They finally tell me I can continue my tour as long as I refrain from so-called inflammatory language such as temple, sanctuary, or worship. I continue the tour, but am a bit shaken by the whole encounter. Why is the Temple Mount, the house of God of all places, one of the few locations in the world where it is illegal to pray or express any kind of worship? And how could I be forbidden to speak the truth about God in the place the Bible repeatedly says that God chose to put his name there forever? I wasn't angry with the Jordanian officers. They were genuinely pursuing what they believed to be true. But I could read something in their faces, something in the way they were acting that made me wonder. They were afraid. Afraid of us praying. Afraid of us worshiping God. The officer expressed it perfectly. You respect the place. You don't respect this as a Muslim place. We have been very respectful of the Jewish and Muslim places on the Temple Mount, but maybe this respect was what the Waf most feared. Perhaps our respect for the place that God chose could indeed bring the glory of the God of Israel once again to his house, a glory that would restore it as the joy of the whole earth. Maybe this is what the Waf was afraid of. A zeal began to rise in me a zeal to see the Temple Mount restored as a glory in all the earth. As our group exited the Temple Mount, an old story began revolving in my head, a story of another confrontation on the Temple Mount. Only this story would involve the creator of the universe himself in human form, and his zeal put mine to shame. Chapter 2 Zeal for the House Consumed Him Picture this. It's a quiet afternoon in Jerusalem. The sun shines lazily on worn cobbled streets. The vendors and merchants are either adjusting their wares for maximum visual impact or chatting quietly among themselves about morning events. The unmistakably pungent smell of temple incense lingers in the air, and thin wisps of smoke still ascend to heaven in a straight pillar, a remaining testimony to the morning sacrificial service completed several hours before. One of the merchants begins to doze off into a pleasant slumber. A persistent fly lands on the very tip of his nose, prompting his eyes to open with a speed only the threat of an impending sneeze can induce. The fly leaves and our merchant is on the point of resuming his nap when something catches his attention. A group of men ascend the stairs to the temple gate, thirteen men in a group to be exact. A leader is out in front with a few stragglers tagging along in the rear. He may be a rabbi bringing his students up for the feast. If so, they would undoubtedly want to purchase offerings for the Passover. But what were they doing? The rabbi stops mid-stride and mid-sentence. It seems his engaging conversation with his student can wait. He had simply looked up, and it's as if his vision was narrowed. He looks as if a great explosion is welling up inside of him, only needing a spark to ignite into an uncontrollable blaze. What is the object of this strange rabbi's avid attention? Surely he has seen the temple courtyard before. Every good Jew would have at some point in their life. The vast colonnades of beautiful pillars inlaid with intricate designs, the multicolored tiled floor reflecting the hot afternoon sun. 
The only thing that would perhaps be new to this rabbi would possibly be the sacrificial market moved from the street below into the space in the middle of the courtyard. This made perfect sense when the temple's leadership made the decision. The court was mostly unused by pilgrims in worship and technically not considered part of the holy place of the temple, as it was only the outer courtyard. The rabbi's breath starts to come in short gasps. He looks at the scene in front of him, hands involuntarily twisting a piece of rope from the stall next to him into a whip. Without warning, the ignition comes as he explodes into into a tremendous ball of fiery energy, whip flying in dizzying circles above his head. Tables fly one way, coins and ledgers fly another. Cattle and sheep are running every which way, and the merchants are now fleeing in terror for their lives. As the dust clears, there stands the rabbi, panting with exertion amid broken tables and piles of coins. The merchants are gone. The cattle and sheep are gone. The courtyard is silent and only occupied by the rabbi's astonished disciples and a few worshippers who had come that afternoon to pray. A loud cry pierces the silence, echoing and reverberating off the surrounding hills and buildings. It was the rabbi. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. Our merchant, now rattled, dusty, and confused, cautiously peers out from a cluster of pillars in time to hear one of the rabbi's disciples mutter under his breath, Zeal for the house has consumed him. Who was this man, and why would he have such zeal for this house? Was it Could it be the promised Messiah, the King of Israel, for whom they had been waiting? Even though this rendition of the stories recorded in John 2 and Mark 11 is a bit dramatized, it holds relatively true to the original telling. The writers of the Gospels and all the accounts of this story seem to make a strong effort to keep the dramatic flair of the initial occurrence accurate. Zeal for the house has eaten him up or, as in the ASV translation, zeal for the house has consumed him. I find this quite extraordinary. Yeshua, our Messiah and Lord, was consumed with zeal for a building. To make this fact even more extraordinary, I want to expound on a few points related to this story. Yeshua, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God, the one who famously taught love for enemies and blessing for persecutors, the mild and meek baby born in a manger, burns with zeal to the point of throwing tables and driving out merchants at the end of a whip. God is zealous. The passages recorded in the Gospels about Yeshua overturning tables on the Temple Mount are the only passages in Scripture that mention Yeshua being zealous for anything specific. In fact, the only time even God the Father is quoted being zealous for anything outside of Israel or Jerusalem is concerning the Temple Mount, otherwise known as Zion. Take these verses from Zechariah 1, 14-16, for example. I, God, am zealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with great zeal. I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. There appears to be a discrepancy in the chronology of exactly when Yeshua cleared out the temple. John places it at the beginning of Yeshua's ministry as one of his first public acts, while the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, place the account toward the end of his ministry. Which one is correct? Scholars have attempted to reconcile this supposed discrepancy in two primary ways, 
both of which are very interesting. The first way of reconciling the account places the different chronologies as two separate occurrences, the first recorded in John, and the second recorded in the other three Gospels. If this idea is correct, then this would mean something incredible. Jesus went into the temple to clear the courts from the merchants and money changers not only once, but twice, on two separate occasions. This would seem to mark the beginning and the end of Yeshua's intentional physical ministry here on earth, bookending his teaching legacy, so to speak. Is it possible that Yeshua intended his act of clearing out the temple courts to be the first action of his ministry, and the miracle of turning water into wine was simply a spontaneous act of compassion? Let's look at the second incident of cleansing the temple found in Mark 11. Here we find Yeshua riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, fulfilling prophecies written about him hundreds of years previously. The residents of Jerusalem greet him with rejoicing, laying their clothes and palm branches on the road for him to ride over. They shout, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David! Jerusalem shook with the noise of the celebration. Temple Replacement This last public action of clearing out the temple courtyard likely came just days before Yeshua's death and resurrection. Why would he have been so incredibly interested in cleansing a system, the physical temple, if he was planning on replacing it in a few days by his death and resurrection? Temple Replacement all these points should lead to some obvious questions. Why is Yeshua, and by extension God, so obsessed with the Temple Mount? Why is he so incredibly zealous for it? And, if 1 John 1.7 tells us to walk just as Yeshua walked, should we be zealous for the Temple Mount too? And what about when Yeshua says in Luke 6.40, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Do we even understand what this means? I'm going to stop there. Again, the book is called Jesus Loves the Temple, written by Benjamin Hilton, and you can go to hayovel.com to their website and go to their marketplace and you can get the book. So, yes, Yeshua was very zealous about the temple. There will be a third temple one day. In the future, and there will be the whole temp temple sacrificial system reinstated. So, it is definitely something we need to study and learn about and care about and pray for, for the third temple to one day soon to be rebuilt, because this is the place where God has chosen to place his name. Have a blessed day, and we'll see you tomorrow. Shalom. Yevrekadonai Vikunekar
The Aaronic Blessing from Numbers Chapter 6, 24-26 Adonai bless you and keep you. Adonai make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Adonai lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.